0: One of the problems with the standard non-anarchist libertarian story is that it recognizes that governments are bad at producing things but then relies on governments to produce some very critical and difficult things such as the legal system uh, and, and the law enforcement and you know if anarchy doesn't work that might be the best you can do but it's not a very satisfactory arrangement. And I'm suggesting there might be something better.
1: David Friedman, thank you so much for joining me.
0: Glad to be here. It's so much easier to to do these things than it was uh, 10, 15 years ago. Right.
1: This year marks the 50th anniversary of a well-known book, The Machinery of Freedom, which offers a compelling case for an anarcho-capitalist society. Before we get into the weeds and talk about how that might look like, Can you share your story of how and why you came to write that book?
0: Huh. I think you're probably thinking of the science fiction influence, that basically my view when I was your age, roughly, was that the market was right for almost everything, but you had to have a framework of laws and law enforcement that was provided by the government. So the law, the the market system was functioning within a system where property rights were enforced and things of that sort. And I then read a science fiction novel by Robert Heinlein, one of my favorite authors, in which he described what seemed to me a believable stateless society a society in which there was no government. It had come into existence more or less by accident. It wasn't constructed by anybody, but he gave what sounded to me like a plausible description of how it would work. And that was a society where law enforcement was endogenous, where it was part of the no government, but there were reasons why people acted in a way which enforced laws. Uh, And, A theorem is defeated by a single counterexample. So even though this was a fictional counterexample, if I was right in thinking that it was a consistent story, that meant that it was not impossible to have a society with the market and without the government. And that got me thinking about how such a thing might work in in, in the society I lived in, which was very different from the one in the novel. The novel, by the way, is called The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, if anybody wants to read it. It's a good story. Uh, And... So that's that's where What Machinery came out of. Uh, and I guess the one thing I would add to that is that my most recent book, which was published a few years ago, uh, is a book on legal systems very different from ours. And it came out of a seminar I taught every other year for quite a while at Santa Clara University. And one of my conclusions from the work that produced that book was that in my first book, I had been reinventing the wheel that there had in fact been historical societies not identical to what I described. They were much more primitive societies, but historical societies in which law and law enforcement were not done by government and yet functioned. And so I have one chapter in that book, which is on what I call feud law, which is a description of how generally such systems work. Uh, and I have several chapters which which describe Workable systems of that sort.
1: So, in the machinery of freedom, you propose a radical idea where law itself could be produced on the market and private firms could offer legal systems and law enforcement competing for clients just as businesses do in other sectors. Mm -hmm. Yes. How are these rights enforcement agencies different from the government in using coercion to protect their clients?
0: Yes. That raises the interesting question of how we define a government because. I don't think you can think of any activity governments engage in that has not at some time and place been engaged in privately. That, you know, we may think of war making as a government activity, but if you speak to an Anglo Saxon from a thousand years ago or so, he could re- inform you that indeed the uh, Norse armies that were. Uh, Ravaging England were more or less entrepreneurial projects put together for loot uh, of various sorts. Uh, So I think the most useful answer is that individuals in a functioning society have a sort of an implicit set of commitment strategies, which involve the idea that there are certain things which if somebody does to me, I will be willing to bear quite large costs to stop them. Uh, so if you imagine that somebody steals my child's toy, and he goes running running down the street, and I go running down the street after him, there's a sense in which that's irrational. The toy costs $3. Uh, running after him, I might get into a fight. I might trip and, and, and break an arm or something. So it looks as though I'm bearing too large a cost. But... The fact that I have a commitment strategy, the fact that if somebody violates my rights, I am willing to go to unreasonably large uh, efforts to stop them is a reason for people not to violate my rights. So in that sense, it makes sense. And I I've discussed this at much greater length in actually in one of the chapters in the third edition of Machinery and in an article I published earlier than that. But I think it makes sense to think of societies as, in a sense, structured by the mutually perceived commitment strategies, claims. Uh, I, I think it's useful to think of the sort of simplest version of that as territorial behavior in animals, that there are a variety of species of animals where the individual somehow marks the territory he's claiming, And then, I like to say, turns a switch in his brain, somehow commits himself, so that if another member of his species comes onto the territory, he will fight it. Fight more desperately the farther onto the territory the individual trespasser comes, since a fight to the death is usually a loss for both sides. That means that unless the trespasser is so much stronger that he can expect to win the fight without getting hurt, once it's recognized that the commitment exists, the trespasser usually retreats, and I think that you can think of human societies as just a much more complicated version of that, where it's not just a claim in land, but it's a claim in how you have to act to me and so forth. And looking at it from that standpoint, then the government is an, a government is an organization against which we drop those commitment strategies. So even though I'm willing to bear considerable costs to to stop somebody from stealing my kid's toy, I'm not willing to bear similar costs to stop the government from taxing me. I'm not willing to bear similar costs to stop the government from enslaving me, which in America at the moment, the only form of real slavery we have is jury duty. But that's slavery in the sense that somebody else is saying, this is the job you're going to do, and you don't get to say no. It's not a very effective form of slavery. There are, in practice, ways of getting out of it, but nonetheless, logically speaking, it's slavery. Uh, And I go along with it. I don't say, all right, you know, come get me. I've got a gun. You can't enslave me, which I might say if a private individual tried to enslave me. Uh, So so I think that's the closest that I can come. And then in the anarcho-capitalist system that I've described, nobody is making that claim, that there is no organization, uh, the individual rights enforcement agencies only have the same rights anybody has, uh, the same rights as their customers have, uh, so therefore there is no government in that sense. The The way I put it in the first edition of Machinery was that a government is an agency of legitimized coercion. And I said then that I was using both of those terms in somewhat odd ways, because legitimized didn't really mean people think it's morally legitimate. It really means they don't react to it the way they usually react to things that aren't morally legitimate. That's my dropping the commitment strategy. And coercion... Doesn't depend on what your moral theory of coercion is, but only on how other people act. On the fact that people treat certain things as coercion, and what that is is going to vary in different societies. So the fancy version is that, is, is as I say, the chapter in the third edition. The simple version is a paragraph or so in the first edition. That that one of the things that happened in the third edition was that I had thought through some of the some of my ideas more carefully, and therefore could say more about them. Uh, so I guess that's that's the basic, the basic logic of it. And you then have a competitive market in which, as I imagine it, now probably the way I imagine it is wrong because it's very hard to predict how institutions will develop. But the way I imagine it is that you have a bunch of firms that sell the service of protecting their customers' rights and settling their customers' disputes. You then have every pair of such firms whose customers might get into a dispute needs some peaceful way of settling it because shooting at each other makes it very hard to hire employees. And also, uh, your customers don't really want their front lawn turned into a free fire zone. So therefore, it pays each pair of firms to agree in advance on an arbitrator. Uh, that agreement is enforced by the fact they're repeat players, that each of them knows that if, if when its customer loses the case. They don't go along, then the next time the other one won't go along and they're back shooting at each other and now they lose customers to more sensible firms. That's the basic logic of it. Uh, And then part of what's interesting about it is that you then have a market mechanism for generating law. Uh, Now, to some extent, that already exists. If you think about private arbitration, there is private arbitration, mostly among firms. Uh, The arbitrators implicitly have a legal system. They've got some set of rules they are going by, and presumably they are trying to design their rules to be ones that customers will want to to be under. Uh, But in my system, that's the whole legal system, that basically uh, each each arbitration agency works out those rules that it thinks will result in in rights enforcement agencies choosing to use its services Rights enforcement agencies want to use to to use the services of arbitrators, who their customers will want to be under. So there's a market pressure for legal rules that don't result in large costs or much uncertainty, or that results people don't don't think are fair and so forth. So you're then having it having it just of having it generated by, by by a market mechanism. That's the basic logic of it, uh, and it seems to me that that, that one of the problems with the standard non-anarchist libertarian story is that it recognizes that governments are bad at producing things, but then relies on governments to produce some very critical and difficult things such as the legal system uh, and, and the law enforcement. And you know, if anarchy doesn't work, that might be the best you can do, but it's not a very satisfactory arrangement. And I'm suggesting there might be something better.
1: Right. Can you explain why the laws produced by anarcho-capitalist institutions won't necessarily be libertarian, but they will be biased toward freedom, won't they?
0: I think so. That is, I th- the, the logic of the, their production is going to tend to give you what an economist would call economically efficient law, meaning that those legal rules that maximize the summed benefit to the people they affect— Uh, I think I believe, as I think most libertarians do, that liberty is generally economically efficient, that it is rarely the case that it is worth more to you to be able to violate my rights than it is to me to have you unable to violate my rights. And I'm sure one can imagine cases which that wouldn't be true. But that, that I think is the usual pattern. On the other hand, since the system is being produced by the market, not by some wise, benevolent judge who's deciding what it should be, We what it produces is going to be what sells on the market. If you have enough of the customers who believe in what I regard as a rights violation, and the example I think I gave in the book was suppose almost everybody thinks that heroin use is a terrible thing and heroin users and heroin dealers should be punished. Well, in that case, a rights enforcement agency will find that they can get more customers if they have those rules in the arbitration agency. So there's no there's nobody standing, there's no libertarian standing over them making them be libertarian. But then, as far as I can tell, that's true of, of any of any version, that is to say that that as best I can tell the picture of anarcho-capitalism that Murray Rothbard offers, Uh, if I understand it correctly, is one in which the reason the laws are libertarian is that the legal philosophers show what is right and everybody does what is right. And that doesn't strike me as a very plausible description of human behavior. Uh, So I don't think, you know, and obviously Rothbard can say, well, if they don't have libertarian laws, then I won't call it my system. Well, that's fine, but you're not calling it my, your system won't protect anybody. Uh, So in that sense, I think it's a a more coherent version uh, than at least that alternative there may be other alternatives i don't know about
1: would you say you're an anarchist for pragmatic reasons that is you think it is a more efficient yes. system rather than from ethical ones
0: uh that's a little complicated i find it more ethically satisfactory but i wouldn't if i was reasonably sure it didn't work i would then be willing to put up with the moderately unjust next best system, so to speak. So in that sense, I think my my preferences are affected by my ethical views as well. Uh, but they aren't determinative. I think it's people like to imagine that their decision making is sort of uh, unambiguous, uh, you know, A Trump's B kind of thing, but most of the time it isn't. Most of the time people have different values. Uh, and they they trade them off. Uh, and of course, I could easily be wrong. That is to say, I can certainly imagine ways in which my system could fail. I, I discuss them in some detail, mostly in the third edition. And if it fails badly enough, then you're better off not doing it. And you're better off having the best government you can manage, even if it's not very good. Uh, Interesting.
1: Let's talk a bit about strategy why is revolution not a reasonable strategy for bringing the system of anarcho-capitalism to the world?
0: Uh, Well, to one thing, by the time you can win the revolution, you presumably can win the election. But aside from that, my impression is that most people at base view government as a way of preventing themselves from getting killed, robbed, et cetera. Therefore, A more violent environment is going to be an environment which people are willing to put up with more government, not less. And generally, revolution involves quite a lot of violence. Uh, And if you try to think of real examples, I guess the U.S. revolution was followed by a pretty libertarian system, but the French Revolution wasn't, the Russian Revolution wasn't uh, the english civil war which was really a revolution uh, ended up in a military dictatorship they had the good luck to have a very competent military dictator a guy called oliver cromwell but nonetheless it wasn't a very libertarian uh system uh so yeah i mean it does, it seems to me a poor strategy and that that a better strategy well there are several better strategies one of them is just what i what i do that is to try to persuade people of the ideas One of them is to try to create market replacements for government activities, if you can, on the grounds that somebody who is already sending his kid to a private school is going to be less upset about the idea that there's no government, there'll be no public schools, and somebody who is sending his mail by UPS is going to be less worried about the abolition of the post office. So in that sense, you can gradually replace government activities by private activities. Uh, and you can also, to some extent, you can, you can create your anarcho-capitalist system online. And that's already happening in a very real sense. If you look at how eBay works, for example, eBay's substitute for law enforcement is mechanisms by which after you have a transaction you get to report on how it went and other people who are going to deal with the same dealer get to see that that report so they're trying to use reputation uh it's not the same system that i described but reputation is one of the mechanisms we use to enforce contracts always has been
1: do you think as we transition to an anarcho-capitalist society some service-providing institutions might naturally evolve from our current governmental institutions due to their established history and all the trust they've gained from the public.
0: That's interesting. There's a science fiction writer by the name of Werner Vinge, who has a short story which at the end of which he says that the society he's got is based on my book. And in that the particular rights enforcement agency uh, that is sort of central to the story is called, I forget what, something like the Michigan State Police. So presumably, he he never, I don't think he goes through the history, but presumably what's happened is that you had a government police force, which as the government disappeared, ended up becoming a private firm instead. And similarly, one could imagine, you know, the the FDA becoming a firm in the business of giving people information about what drugs were dangerous and things of that sort. Uh, so that's not impossible. Uh, that's more more a question for science fiction writers than for me, I think. But Sure. Uh, and part of the fun of that, st- the story is called The Ungoverned, by the way. And it's a story about the invasion of a stateless area by an adjacent state. And part of what I like about it is the way in which the characters on each side see things in terms of their society so that the state doesn't think of their invading an anarchist society. They think of the people in the anarchist society I think as gangsters. Uh, That's their view of the rights enforcement agencies. And part of what happens in the story is that in the stateless society, there are occasionally people who they refer to as armadillos. And an armadillo is somebody who has opted out of the whole system of rights enforcement and just stayed on his own property protecting himself. Uh, and there is a farmer uh, whose son lost a law case like 20 years ago, and who was, was really angry about it. And so he became an armadillo and he spent a lot of his, of, of his income on fortifying his farm. And the invading army happens to well, actually, some some kids manage to lure the invading army towards his farm. Uh, I don't. I think they use fireworks or something to suggest an attack or something. I don't remember the details. It never occurs to the invading army that they can go around it. From their standpoint, this is obviously a fortress the fortress must of course be part of the military of the enemy so we have to destroy this fortress in order to continue uh and it turns out they 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 it, the Louis society is a good deal richer than the invading one so the individual armadillo has substantial military forces that he's accumulated but not as large as the invading army so the invading army loses a good deal and then completely destroys his defenses and it then turns out that he has a last-ditch defense and his last defense is a nuclear weapon and a very deep hole that his family is hiding in so they set off the nuclear weapon over their heads in effect and it destroys like a third or a quarter of the invading army. At this point, there is a representative of the local rights enforcement agency who is a prisoner of the invaders. Uh, I don't remember the details of how. And he's talking to the commander and the commander of the invaders says, what kind of, slum, of scum are you using nuclear weapons against us? And the guy looks at him sort of a puzzled expression, says, What do you mean us? He's not our customers. And I just thought it was a beautiful example of the way people see things in their own terms. Uh, on the other hand, a different work of fiction, which makes a point which maybe undercuts my position, I'm not sure, uh, there's a book called Oath of Fealty" by Niven and Pornell, who are quite good science fiction writers. And uh, Pornel is no longer alive, unfortunately. And it's describing a an arcology, essentially a single building that's a small city. And in their story, there have been riots at some point in Los Angeles, which burned out part of the city. And an international corporation made a deal with the city of Los Angeles, in which they got to build their small city-sized building on that territory. The people in that do not pay taxes, uh, but the arcology, the organization, pays some fixed amount to to the city. And in effect, it's its own government. And part of the point of what happens in the story is that the people in the Arco- in Toto Santos, the arcology, then focus the same kinds of emotions of patriotism on the arcology that people normally focus on a country, hence the title Oath of Fealty. Uh, so that what Nominally, is only a miscarriage of of of, of justice. Uh, looks to them like enemy action, and and they react to it like enemy action. It it I, I won't go through the whole thing. It's it's quite a nice a nice story. Uh, but you could argue that that means that in my system, you will end up with people being loyal to their rights enforcement agencies. If they're loyal to the rights enforcement agencies, then there's less competition because they're unwilling to switch rights enforcement agencies, and so forth and so on. So. Anyway, I, th- I think fiction is an interesting way of making arguments. And, uh, I guess I've done it a little bit in my, in my fiction, but I don't think I'm, I'm not as good as either Vinjo or Niven and Fornell, unfortunately.
1: I'm definitely going to add those to to my reading list. There's also, I haven't finished this entirely, but I read it a while ago as well, so Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson.
0: Yeah, that's fun. It, it has the like... interesting thing is that, as far it, it doesn't look to me as though he's read any of the anarcho capitalist literature, or at mm-hmm. least very little of it. But he's doing his own somewhat tongue in cheek version of an anarcho capitalist society. And I don't think he works out many of the details, mm-hmm. but it's certainly an entertaining and interesting book. Yeah. Uh,
1: For sure. And government there is like so, I think it still exists, but it's so powerless and so on the side. That, that he really says matter. he
0: he says that it's essentially there is a building which still has people who consider themselves civil servants and they go to work every day but they aren't actually doing anything. Right. Uh. Uh. Yes. Uh. Right. Yeah. I know that Snow Crash is fun. Uh. I auth- I I started another book of his and then dropped off and I should probably go back and and read it because it's one which is describing a future society but a somewhat different one. Uh, yeah. So, what? Tell me about yourself. This has all been you asking me questions.
1: <laughs> sure. Um,
0: Where do you, do you live?
1: So I live in Mumbai, India, and yes. I came across your. But the
0: most, do most people there call it Mumbai or do they still call it Bombay?
1: Uh So most people call it Mumbai now because Bombay was the name Bombay you might know it comes from the Britishers who ruled us and, uh, they mm. basically called it Bombay. So uh, it kind of yeah. stuck with a lot of
0: people. But they yeah. did that for quite a long time. Right. And,
1: yeah. And uh, it's, so it stuck with uh, a lot of people here, but uh, now people uh, are starting to call it Mumbai. Some people, yeah. some old people do call it Bombay, but yeah.
0: Yeah. Yes. Uh, I've been there, but not for very long.
1: All right. Uh, what, what did you come here for?
0: Oh, I gave, I had a speaking trip, uh, i've been in india twice but the more recent one was a speaking trip where i gave talks in various places i no longer remember the full list but it was interesting yeah it's an interesting country the what struck me was that it felt to me like a description of a capitalist society by a loyal communist who had never been outside of the soviet union that is to say uh rich people poor people uh Extreme. And this was a country which had been ruled by a socialist party from at that point, I think. Well, no, I think I think Congress had been out of power at one point, but basically been ruled by a socialist party for all of its history. Uh, There was I spoke at a sort of business school. Not in not in Mumbai. It, it's I forget the name, but it's a there's a city in sort of South Central India which is thought of as a sort of a Silicon Valley kind of thing. You probably know what the name maybe of it
1: Chennai is. or Bangalore.
0: Bangalore. Bangalore, Bangalore, and I spoke at a at a at a business school kind of place. I don't know if that's what they called it. It was that sort of thing in Bangalore. And it was a beautiful campus with trees and lots of space and nice buildings surrounded by a high concrete wall with barbed wire on top of it. And that struck me as sort of symbolizing uh, (laughs) what that society is like. Uh, And obviously huge numbers of talented, hardworking people, uh, but not a very good set of institutions.
1: Hmm. Yeah. So I came across your book. Not that long ago, actually, uh, a friend recommended it to me who basically <laughs> was converting me to libertarianism and, and yeah. uh, I I was amazed at your book. And so, you know, just reached out and with the power of the internet and the world we live in mm-hmm. today, was able to have this chat with you today. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. The To what extent do you think your generation in India are open to new ideas? I'm not thinking of anarcho-capitalism in, in particular, but my impression is... That certainly educated Indians, you know, in the past were pretty much committed to a sort of socialist, to, to roughly the views that they got from the English left wingers in the pre war and post war period. Uh, and I'm wondering whether that's still the case or whether at this point uh, different ideas are likely to circulate.
1: Uh... So I'm not really sure about political ideas because, uh, as I say, I got in re- interested into them really recently and yes. uh, kids my age don't typically get interested in that. Uh, but in terms of new ideas, like we, we have been evolving. So you might have a sense of India, like um, at least in the past, historical India as um, like uh, really religious and orthodox. And... Uh, you know, following a creed and stuff. Mm. But now, uh, where like women are considered sort of different from men and n- not given entirely equal rights. But now that's changing, at least with educated Indians, and uh, mm. uh, at least we're tending into the direction of the West and we're inheriting a lot of values from the West, I'd say. Um, but.
0: Yeah, uh... not, it's not necessarily a good thing. I've I've been saying for a long time that one of the interesting things about this century was going to be watching the other old civilizations come back online. That there's a sense in which for the last few hundred years, all that's really mattered has been the West, has been European civilization. And Japan was really the first break in that. That there's a sense in which you could sort of see the Battle of Tushima Straits, where the uh, Russian Imperial Russia uh, sent their fleet all the way, more or less around the world, only to have it wiped out by the Japanese, and that was the first point at which a, at which it was clear that a non-European power could be in the same could play in the same in the same league as yes, it were as a European. Now to some extent, I guess the Sikhs were showing that also pretty early in terms of their interaction, but they lost eventually, even though not clear why they lost. Uh and probably some other examples. And but now more and more you've got India, you've got China, you've got Iran, uh maybe Brazil. Brazil is sort of a European civilization, but it's not all that European. Uh, And in that sense, I think it would be it'll be a more interesting world if they don't all decide to copy everything that the European civilization believes in. if they have ideally capitalist institutions, but their own version of capitalist institutions, There's not not clear they have to be the same. Mm -hmm. You could imagine one society where most firms were families. Uh, That's a possible structure. There have been arrangements of that sort of thing. Uh, Others where they weren't and so forth. So anyway, I mean, I. If I live long enough, I hope to to, to see what kind w- what a modern, developed, reasonably capitalist uh, India looks like. Uh, yeah,
1: and I've often heard you give uh, cite India as an example and China as well of emerging capitalist countries yeah. that are uh, a good example to show the world that you know socialism, mm-hmm. other forms of government, they don't work, but uh, yeah. these are yeah better.
0: If, if I referred to the permit raj, would you know what I meant? Permit Raj, uh, I'm not sure. No. Raj as ruler. Yeah. And the permit Raj, which I think still exists to a considerable extent, is a system where, in order to do anything, you've got to uh, get a permit from some government official who you probably have to bribe.
1: Oh. And that okay. I
0: think described the Indian economy for quite a while, yeah. and it yeah. may still. <laughs> and I'm just not, not sure to what extent that way of looking at it is 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 common among your generation.
1: Yeah, not not that, uh, not that worry. I think, but anyway, I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about a chapter you have in specific in the Machinery of Freedom called the Rights of Youth. It also ties to the topic of education and unschooling. So, some people might almost entirely agree with your vision of a stateless society, but might still think that children need to be disciplined for their own benefit, or they need a formal structure to effectively learn about the world. Can you talk about why they don't and at a more macro level?
0: Well, it it probably depends on the child. Mm -hmm. That is to say, uh, children vary vary a lot. And I don't think I know how all of them should be educated. But the pattern that appeals to me and that we tried to follow for our kids is one in which you don't have a list of what, what is the kid supposed to learn this week. You instead try to get kids interested in things and then support them in their interests. so that uh, I guess, could be almost any. The thing is that there isn't a list of things that everybody has to learn. Uh, and if you think about it of the things that you're that are going to an ordinary ordinary class, an ordinary course, a K through 12 education, a few of them are things that will be useful to almost everybody, like how to read, although that's something you can also learn yourself pretty easily if you, if you want to. Uh, and, but most of them are things where there are other things not in the list, which would be just as likely to be useful that, uh, the probably, I mean, I guess, uh, nowadays in a good school you're going to learn calculus in your senior year in high school probably well some people that's going to be useful for on the other hand there're going to be lots of people for whom probability theory would be more useful or statistics would be more useful or something not mathematical would be more useful economics would be more useful uh and similarly for all of the rest of the things so that i think it makes more i think in general people are much better at learning things they want to learn than learning things they're told to learn and that it therefore makes much more sense to structure your education. Uh, I like to describe it as throwing books at people at kids and seeing which ones stick. Uh, and uh, rather than trying to say these are the things you have to learn, uh, so that would at least be my my approach to it. And I discussed that in in uh, machinery and in a number of my old blog posts. Uh, yeah,
1: and but the a...
0: right, rights of youth. It's not clear where you draw the line of rights of youth. It seems to me it's pretty clear that if your two-year-old wants to walk out into the street where the cars are coming, you pull him back or her back. Uh, on the other hand, I would say that if a 14-year-old really doesn't want to live with his parents, that suggests that his parents are doing something wrong. And if somebody else is willing to offer him an alternative, or if he can find an alternative for himself, that probably would be better. Uh that I think institutions in which governments take kids away mostly do damage, not good. But institutions in which it is easier for kids to run away uh, once they can somehow take care of themselves seems to me a better substitute. And either of those is something that will go wrong. I mean, obviously, yeah, there, are, there isn't a good solution to the problem.
1: Right? Do you think there's, uh, you know, room for progress in this space at least? Uh, yeah, in- I
0: think so. I think so. And it would be nice if you had if you think about a sort of uh, market quasi orphanage, uh, an institution which says, if you want to run away from your kids, here are the terms we'll take care of you on. And if you don't like it, go back to your parents you Want to run away from your parents, not from your kids. Heinlein actually has a, a throwaway line in one of his juveniles about somebody who is an emancipated minor having divorced his parents. Uh, you know, yeah, the... at a more
1: macro level today, it seems that we have made some progress in this area, but how can we further separate education from the state and, uh, ideally, entirely separate well, education from the state? That
0: is. In the US, I think the closest you can that's practical to come in, at practice in present is with a voucher system in which the state is still involved, but it's involved only in the sense of giving the money that would go to the public school instead to the parent who is educating his kid in some other school. Uh, homeschooling and home unschooling are options, but they have costs, obviously. You have to have, uh, they're probably going to get become better options over time because of development of institutions that is that a lot of the cost of homeschooling is tying up an adult who's got to be supervising the kid and that's less of a problem if you've got eight kids who are playing together and only one adult so part of what you need i'm sure in some places has happened is developing institutions by which multiple homeschoolers can trade off who is doing the the parenting the the grown-up part I know
1: a really exciting entrepreneur who's uh, doing this, basically solving this problem. And uh, it's called Moonrise, his company. And he calls it a co-learning space for kids. And Uh uh, basically, it's like this giant place that even adults like because it's just uh, so good. It's like, you know, better than like a really good coffee shop. Uh, And Uh so adults will like it as well. There's a big library. And um good like you know up-to-date technology with like a
0: recording room where, where where is this
1: i think it's in um i forget decatur someplace in the u.s uh decatur
0: uh decatur
1: yeah decatur uh i'm not sure whether it is though, decatur what state.
0: is i have a vague feeling that it's in georgia but i'm not yeah, sure yeah, yeah,
1: georgia yeah it is it, it, it is uh, in georgia. yeah uh and the american
0: uh, georgia not the not the european not the asian yeah, georgia the american
1: yeah <laughs> uh wow. and, and um yeah so it's really interesting so he has uh kids come over um I, I don't know the exact time but they can stay for like uh probably a day and uh, they they can have other forms of subscription like yearly subscription or just come for a day or like the whole week or something and uh it's really fun you know because there's other kids uh i don't think adults are allowed rather other than like a, a couple who might be in charge of like, you know, facilitating the kids' learning and stuff. But kids are basically (laughs) just, yeah, Yeah, throwing books at them.
0: People do learn from each other. I like to say that I only discovered that geology was interesting when I fell in love with a geologist (laughs) uh, to whom I have been married for many years. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, interesting. So I have a final question for you. Sure. Which is more important, separation of education and state or separation of money and state? Education. Education.
0: Yeah, I think so. The separation of money and state is easy if the state will let you do it. Uh, but at least, that depends on the state, but at least the U.S. state doesn't do that horrible a job of of running money. I mean, we have inflation rates of somewhere between 0 and 10%. You know that's too bad but it's not a catastrophe but it does a very bad job of running education notice by the way that in islamic societies in theory you have separation of law and state now in practice in practice most islamic societies didn't really adhere to that but that was the legal theory
1: yeah that's interesting well david i want to thank you so much for your time today and we thank
0: you for hosting me it was fun
1: yeah, and uh,
0: uh, and if you ever if you ever get to Silicon Valley, we will be happy to feed you dinner.
1: <laughs> appreciate it. We leave links to your blog where people can find um, all your books and uh, not all your books, but a lot of your books are webbed over oh. there for free for people to read, yes. as well as the Substack, which I think people should subscribe to. So, uh-huh. uh, yeah, uh, it was great right. and this was really thank fun. you.
0: It was fun. Thank you. Bye bye. See you Sunday. You too. Bye.